Good morning. I believe that this is the best crowd that we've had since we've come back to meeting. Uh, this is not a crowd, but this is the best we've had. So relatively speaking, this is humongous. I mean, this may be the Super Bowl. We're getting, we're getting, uh, we're getting close to needing to call this a protest. We're going to have to... Exactly. We may have to call it a protest soon if, exactly, if we have too exactly. many more people here. We're going to call it a, a worship protest. That way they can't do anything to us. Well, it is good to see you this morning. Uh, we finished the series that we were doing through the seven letters to the churches of Revelation last week. And we're going to start another series next Sunday that Derek is going to talk about here in a little while. And in between, I have been thinking and praying about what would God have us say to me? What would he have to say to us out of some text of Scripture? And I kept coming back to one of my favorite texts in all of the Old Testament. It is in the book of 2 Kings. And so that's in the Old Testament. So if you'll start turning and finding that place in your Bibles, the book of 2 Kings, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But let me explain to you a little bit of the difference of types of Scripture. Much of Scripture is what we call didactic. It means that it is teaching Scripture. It is specifically given, it's didactic in nature. It is given specifically to teach uh, truths and, and commandments and, and words from God. But then some of Scripture is not didactic in its nature. It is what we call narrative Scripture. It's Scripture that tells a story. Now, some of the New Testament is didactic. Most of it is. And some of it is narrative, particularly in the Gospels. But a great deal of the Old Testament is given to us in narrative form. In other words, stories that are given to us in the Old Testament. And the question always comes, well, we can understand what didactic uh, value is in the New Testament when it's actually teaching, it's things that God wants to teach us, but what value is there in the narrative text? What value is there when the Scripture just tells a story? Well, we have to first of all understand that God placed the stories there for a purpose. As a matter of fact, part of the teaching of the New Testament didactic work of Paul as he's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, he reminds them, speaking about the Old Testament, he says that these things happened as examples to us. In other words, what he's saying is, not only is what is teaching in nature important for us, but God has given us stories as he's worked into the life of his people, and there is teaching value there as well. They were given as, as an example for us. And so it becomes then, when you see it that way, it's not just a cool story to hear, and there's some really cool stories, but they are instructional stories. There are things that God wants us to learn. So this morning, as we come to the book of Kings, the second book of Kings, uh, we have one of those instructional stories, a narrative, but for instruction. Now, there are two books in the Old Testament called Kings, and we have creatively named them 1 Kings and 2 Kings, okay? How creative is this? Because what they are is they are a story of the various kings of the Old Testament people and what they did and what God's people were doing under their reign and rule and how God was interacting with them during the period of time of those kings. So our story this morning is in the second book of kings. Now here is the historical setting, so you can kind of put it into context. The 12 tribes of Israel, in other words, the Hebrew tribes that God had brought out of Egypt into the promised land, are no longer a united kingdom. They're no longer under one king. They were only under one king for three kings. And that was the first, the we three kings. They could have sang that, couldn't they? Uh, the first being King Saul, 
and then King David, and then following was David, David was Solomon. And so they were a united kingdom, all 12 tribes of Israel under one king. But after Solomon's death, they split into two tribes or two kingdoms because there was a dispute over who was to follow Solomon as the king. And so we split from 12 united kings, uh, kingdoms to two, and it was divided kingdoms, and they each one had a king, and they each one had a capital, and they each had a temple, as a matter of fact. So the 10 northern tribes are called Israel, and they had their capital in the city of Samaria. The two southern tribes were called Judah, and they had their capital in Jerusalem. Now, both of them have their problems as time goes by, but part of the, the time in Kings is it, is it is talking about this period of United Kingdom when there's a king in the northern, ten tribes, and there's a king in the south. Now, our story this morning relates to the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes who have their capital in Samaria. Now, what is happening here is, is that there is a pagan king, the king of Syria, as a matter of fact, that has surrounded, that has put the city of Samaria under siege. His name is Ben-Hadad, not Ben-Hur, okay? I know it's close, but that's, that's, a, that's television. But this is King Ben-Hadad of Syria has put the capital city of the northern kingdom under siege to starve the people out. And so the people, in essence, are facing a pandemic. Not a pandemic of sickness, as it were, but a pandemic of starvation. And it's interesting, as we get into this narrative, into this story, that the focus of the story is not on the king. Because most of the stories in First and Second Kings are about the king. Was he a godly king? Was he an ungodly king? How was he leading the people? What was he doing? How was God interacting it's not about the king. He's not the focus of this story, nor is the prophet the focus because there were prophets God sent to the northern kingdom. He sent prophets to the southern kingdom. Elisha was a prophet that was active in the northern kingdom during the period of time of our story. Not Elijah, but Elisha. And Elisha was one of the major prophets, but the story is not about Elisha either. It's not about the king. It's not about the prophet. It's about four men that are quite... Ordinary, as a matter of fact, but they did something that in itself was pretty unordinary. See, these were four lepers. They had the deadly disease of leprosy. There was no cure. Your you know, extremities began to fall off and eventually you died. It was, very, it was very contagious. And so lepers were ostracized in the ancient world from the population, from the city of people. So we find these four lepers who are sitting at the gate of the city. They're not in the city. They're not outside of the city. Because you see, they were in quarantine. They had COVID. They had been, they had been tested and had come back positive. And so here they are during this time. They're sitting at the gate of the city. And they become the focus of this story. God is going to teach us some things through these four Individuals. We're going to learn from four lepers. Now, why are we going to learn from them? Well, because they went places no one else would go, and they did some things that no one else would do, and God worked in them, and God worked through them for the purpose of His people. As you, you could say, in order to go along with the title, they practiced the art of being quite unordinary. So what does that mean? 
What did they do? What did these four lepers sitting at the gate of the city, the city is under siege, people are starving to death, what did they do? Well, the first thing they did is that they took a risk. As I said to you a moment ago, the scripture tells us that the conditions were, well, they were desperate, as a matter of fact, in the city. The people in the city were literally starving to death because Ben-Hadad had for quite some time now had cut off the city. And so they were not able to get any resources into the city. People were not able to go out of the city. The food supply had been cut off and he was literally starving them to death. So in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, verse 25, it tells us how bad it was. It says, a donkey's head, if you could find one to buy, was selling for 80 shekels of silver. Now, folks, that was a pretty good size of money, particularly to buy for a donkey's head just to eat a donkey's head. I mean, they were at the point, if you could get a donkey's head, it was going to cost you a bunch of money. It was going to cost you 80 shekels. So, not only that, it says that a quarter cup of dove's dung was selling for five shekels. It doesn't tell us how they were collecting this stuff. Derek piped off in the first service and said they were wiping it off the windshields of their chariots. I don't know exactly how they were getting it. Maybe they were under the eaves collecting it. But if you could get a quarter cup of dove's dung, it was going to cost you five shekels. Now, what's it telling us? Well, it's telling us, folks, times are tough. The people were reduced to eating donkey head burgers and having dove dung dessert. I mean, it can't get much worse than this. And then it does. It can get worse. It can always get worse because the text tells us that the king of Samaria was out of Israel, was out surveying the situation one day on the wall of the city and this woman runs up to him, got past the secret service, I guess, and all that kind of stuff, and, and, and said to him, King, bring your son today and we'll boil him and eat him today and then tomorrow I'll bring my son and we'll boil and we'll eat him. Now, when you think about that, this is desperation, folks. This is beyond description, as a matter of fact. This is depravity. This is desperation that is leading to, to depravity that is beyond human thinking. But this was a desperate situation. So the first question that comes to mind is, well, why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? What has gone on here for it to get this bad for God's people? Well, because they had done what God's people often did in the Old Testament and God continually told them not to do and told them what would happen if they did is that they went through a period of time where they had turned their backs upon the God, their Lord. They had just turned their backs. They would begun to worship the pagan gods. They began to offer pagan sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. God said to his people, look, when you do that, I'm going to withdraw my protection from you. And every time that God withdrew his protection from his people because they were surrounded by enemies who wanted to destroy them, then those enemies would come upon them. And God would do that in order to discipline his people and to bring them back to him. And so we're in one of those periods of God withdrawing his protecting hand, his discipline his people, calling his people to come back to him. And folks, here right off the bat, once again, we, we, we come face to face with something that we have to understand. Because Scripture teaches us this all through the Old Testament as well as into the New Testament, that our God, in His dealings with His people, our God, in accomplishing His sovereign purpose on earth and in heaven, is not all about kitty cats and puppy dog tails. 
I mean, often you kind of get this idea, well, you know, everything is soft and easy. No, God says over and over, you turn your back on me, I'm, I'm going to come and stomp a mud hole in you. I'm going to discipline you because I love you. And like a heavenly, like a good father who disciplines his earthly children, if you turn your back on me and go after foreign gods, then I'm going to come and I'm going to discipline you in order to draw you back to me because I love my children. Are you, are you with me? So God has withdrawn his protecting hand from his people. They are now suffering the consequences of their choices. They are in this scenario because they have willingly chosen to rebel against God, turn their backs upon him, chase after the gods of the nations around them, and God has withdrawn his hand. So that's the setting of the story. And then the story turns to the center part of the entire event, and that is the four lepers who are sitting at the gate of the city. And what the four lepers were doing, as you read the narrative, is they were talking over the situation, as you can imagine many people in the city were doing, and we would do as well, were we in their situation. And in the, the discussion, they conclude, men, we are facing a conundrum of massive proportions. In fact, in verse 4, it says that one of them speaks up, and in the words of, oh, brother, where art thou? Listen, guys, we're in a tight spot. Okay? I mean, we are in a tight spot. And here's, here's the situation, guys. I just want to bring you up to date on it, okay? If we go back into the city, we're going to die like everyone else in the city. If we stay right here, sitting at the gates, we're going to die of starvation. Neither of those is a great option. Now, if we go... So, so what are we going to do? Well, it's, it's time to start thinking out of the box a little bit here. Stay, going, going to the city, going to die because everybody's going to die in the city. Staying here, going to die. Not great option, so let's do this. Let's go out to the camp of the enemy. Let's go into the Syrians' camp, and if they spare us, then we live. But then he says, and if they kill us, well, we will but die. I love that. It's like, okay, staying here, we're going to die. Go in there, we're going to die. Go out there, we may die. But if we go out there, it's the only hope that we have. And so they decide to go into the enemy's camp. What's he saying? In essence, what he is saying is let's take a risk. Let's refuse to sit here in this situation and simply die. In other words, let's take a leap. And in my thinking this week, I thought they became leaping lepers. <laughs> I've been working on that all week long. Has waited all week to the say The delivery that. was much better in the second service than it was in the first. You responded better. I like you. Y'all come back next week. Yeah. They take a leap. Now let's go to what they did. Now understand, this wasn't an uncalculated risk. They took a risk. These guys are taking a risk, a leap into a risk. And it wasn't an uncalculated risk. They knew the possible outcome, but they also knew the outcome of staying where they were, going back into the city. And they knew they could die if they went out to the Syrian camp. So it wasn't uncalculated. It wasn't an impetuous risk before they made the decision to do it. What they do? They weighed their options. It wasn't a thoughtless risk. No, they had given great thought to this. They had thought through all of the various scenarios. But after all of this, and they put it all together, they concluded it's time for a leap. It's time 
for lepers to start leaping. And so that's exactly what they did. They leaped out and they took a risk by going into the camp of the Syrians. Now, that's the, step, that's the story. Now let me bring the application because you cannot read this story without seeing the parallels between their situation and the situation that we often find ourselves in. And remember, the scripture says that hap- these things happen to these people as examples to us. In other words, there's, there's something that we can learn from this. If we listen to the Lord, the Lord has something He wants to say to us through this story. In a way, what these men did is really a picture of the Christian life from the very beginning to the end. What do we call it? We call it the leap of the leap of faith. That's exactly what it is. It's not a blind leap. It's not an irresponsible leap. It's not an uncalculated leap. But eventually all of us, when we come to faith in Christ, we come to that point where we are at the end of everything we know and we must take that next step into the chasm of darkness based only on what He's told us He will do. And we don't get to know if He's going to do that when we're on this side, right? So we have to leap. We have to take that risk to take that step of faith into Christ Jesus. And so in a sense, when we come to Christ, we're all sitting at the gate of the city. We're all lepers. We all have the death sentence. We all have a disease of sin that has given us the death sentence. We all are sitting there knowing we're going to die. And Jesus comes along and says, I'll save you. I'll give you life. But you're going to have to take a leap. You're going to have to take a risk. You're going to have to take me at my word that I will do What I tell you, I will do. And some of us took that leap. Some of us became leaping lepers and came into Christ and found out that Jesus could be trusted to do what He said He will do. But folks, understand this. That leap, when you take Christ as Savior, is only the beginning. It is not the end. Because the entirety of the Christian life is about doing exactly what we had to do, which is to enter into the life in Christ, and that is to take the risk of faith. Let's let's take just a moment here. Let's define the Christian life, okay? Let's just talk about that. What is the Christian life? And there are some options that we can kind of think about for a moment. Well, is is the Christian life defined by learning? In other words, is that what the Christian life is all about? Is it about packing our heads with knowledge of the Bible and about God? Is that the Christian life? Some of you are not sure because it is important to take in knowledge, but a whole lot of Christians have reduced the Christian life down to learning. That learning has become about this academic exercise about how much history and archaeology you can understand and how many scriptures you can memorize and all those kinds of things. And so reduce the Christian life down to learning. But that's not what the New Testament says. The Christian life is not just a life of learning. As important as the Word of God is. And you know we believe in that. Okay. Well, if the Christian life is not defined by learning, then is it by... Could it be defined by listing? In other words... Having a list of things I'll do and things I don't do, okay? A good Christian life is someone who's got this list. I know all these things I ain't going to do, 
And I got all these things I'm supposed to do, and so I'm listing on these two columns, and when I do pretty well, I'm living out the Christian life. Now, no doubt, there's plenty that God tells us He wants us to do in order to honor Him. There's plenty that He tells us to stay away from in order to not dishonor Him. But the question isn't about that. The question we're asking is, is this the Christian life? Does this encapsulate the Christian life? Is it about learning? And if you learn a lot, then you're living out the Christian life. Is it about listing and you got your list of do's and you got your list of don'ts? And if you're doing pretty darn good, you got more checks than you do X's, then you're living out the Christian life? No, I, I submit to you folks, our text in the entire New Scripture tells us that the Christian life is defined by leaping. It's not about listening, it's not about learning. It's not about listing. It is about leaping into the chasm of faith and taking God at His Word. It is a leap when we start the Christian life to come into Christ. It's a leap when we come in our daily lives and we come to this place and there's not another step before us that the light is shining on. And so we have to see what has God said? What will He do if I will trust Him? And I have to step out and in that instance I have to leap into the chasm of darkness and take Him at His word. I submit to you that is the definition of the Christian living. And if you're not living a life of leaping, you're not living out the Christian life. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you're not living out the Christian life. If you're just learning and if you're just listening, you are not living out the Christian life because the Christian life is lived out by leaping day by day. It's what the Word of God tells us from the beginning to the end. Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the great roll call of the faithful. I've taught verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 11 several times in the last 40 years and probably will do it again if God gives me a, the ability to do it one of these days. But I love the Hebrews 11 because it is the roll call of the faithful. It's, it's, it's a listing in Hebrews 11, you might read it sometime, of just God says, this guy and this guy and this girl and this woman, and what did they do? What, were they learners? Yeah, they were learners, but... Were they listers? Yeah, they did, the, they, they did all of that. But more than that, the reason they're in Hebrews 11 is because they were leapers. Because they took the risk of faith over and over and over. It says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abraham, what did he do? Well, he leapt out of Ur into the land that God was going to send him into and, 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 and showing. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Moses. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Joseph, Jacob, Rahab, by faith, Gideon, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, just on and on and on. It's just hammering this down to us. They were in the roll call of the faithful because they were learners, yes. Maybe they were listers too, as we ought to be at some point in our life. But the main thing that God says, they lived out the life because they were leapers. I said to them, Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. Will you take this leap? Abel, will you offer the better sacrifice, the blood sacrifice? I, will you take that leap? Sarah, will you believe me of having a child in your old age? Will you take that leap? Enoch, will you walk with me? Will you do that? Gideon, Samuel, all of them, God said, they've pleased me. Because they took the risk. Now, what is the point? The point is, 
what Paul said in Romans. The just shall live by learning. Hope you know enough scripture to know that's not right. The just shall live by listing all the things they're not going to do and all the things they're going to do. No. The just shall live by leaping by faith. The just shall live by, not just enter into the Christian life by faith, folks. That's just the first leap. We are to be leaping every day of our lives, not blindly, not irresponsibly, taking God at His word. Now, here's the danger. It's always a danger that we begin the Christian life by leaping, and before learn long, we just become learners and listers. You remember? You took that leap of faith into Jesus, and it was so miraculous. And then over the course of time, you look at your life one day and you settle into this life of comfort and the Christian life for you has become nothing more than just learning more scripture and listing more things you don't do and things that you do. But God says, where is the leaping? There's nothing unordinary about learning or about listing. What defines the unordinary, what defines these lepers is that they took a risk. Now here's the question. When was the last time that you took a leap? Not for fun, not to be stupid, but took a leap for faith. I'm not talking about something impetuous. I'm not talking about something crazy. I'm talking about stepping out and taking God at His word. Deciding I'm not going to sit at the gate anymore and die here. I'm not going back into the city to die. I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to go out into the enemy's camp. I can't make that personal application for you, and I won't even try to, because each of us has to do that on our own. But I can make it for our church, and I think it's time for us to do so. In the midst of a pandemic, we find ourselves, the globe, actually, but let's speak about America. And we entered into this thing about eight months ago with very little information. We were getting conflicting information almost from day one. So we assumed, and we still must assume, if we're willing to give the benefit of the doubt, that they were learning just as we were trying to figure this thing out. And when we stopped meeting, which was, I can't remember exactly, it was March, when we, when we made the decision to stop meeting, we did so voluntarily here at City on a Hill. We did it before it was mandated by our county. Some of you do not remember that. We looked at the information. We looked at what we were hearing. We looked at our people. And we said, you know, for a period of time, we need to just make this decision. And so we made it on our own. We were not required to do so. We did it before it was required to do so, as a matter of fact. We just thought that it was the judicious thing to do. We thought it was the right and the prudent thing to do. Of course, over the time of those eight months, we've learned a whole lot. We've learned so much more. And treatment has improved. Uh, so many things have just happened in these eight months. We've, we've gained greater knowledge in the real risks and the risks that are manufactured risk, if you will, to be kind, I guess. We, we've learned more about who is really at risk and who really is really not at risk. This is all information that no one had in the beginning. But now we're beginning to understand and we're also, we think we're beginning to be told the truth a little more often, perhaps, than we did at the beginning. Again, I'm going to be the benefit of the doubter. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They thought they were speaking the truth and found out that they weren't. I don't know. Some of them probably were, and a lot of them weren't. There were other agendas that began to come into this thing, and we all know that. We all understand that. I don't know what those agendas were. I'm not privy to that information. 
But I'm smart enough to see that something has been going on. But over that eight months period of time, we've come to really some basic knowledge that we have off the CDC website. And I know that many of you say, well, I don't even trust the CDC website. But, but I think you can trust this information because it's opposite of what they were saying to us through so much of this pandemic. On the CDC website, you can read it. If you're in the age of 1 through 19, listen, you have a 1 one-hundredth of 1% mortality rate. That's not 1% mortality rate. That is 1 one-hundredth of 1% mortality rate if you're in the age group of 1 through 19. Okay? So uh, that's pretty low. That's pretty low. If you're in the age group of 70 or up, you have a five point, this is of people that are actually infected, not of the population, but people that are actually infected. You have a 5.3% mortality rate. Okay, so of the 70 and up who are infected, only 5.3% will actually die. But we also know, because the CDC has recently gotten honest about this and the way that they've reported the numbers, because it was not reported honestly for months and months and months, is that only 6% of the ones who do die from the virus, died only from the virus. So you've got these small numbers and then you go, but only, and only 6% of those actually died only from the virus. The vast majority, 99.9.999% had comorbidities. They had other things that were underneath, underlying, that caused the virus to have its devastating, ultimate mortal effect. So we're getting to understand some things. And, and as we come to understand things, it does not mean that lives are not important. It does not mean that those who do die are not important. That's not what we're trying to say at all. But we're trying to understand what is a wise course of action in the midst of the realities of what we know. We are very aware that our entire economy has been devastated by this thing. Not just America's, the world, the global economy has been devastated by this pandemic. How many of you, you're aware of that, right? They're telling us, listen, 50% of restaurants are going to close their doors, of mom and pop restaurants, people who poured their lives into this business have fed their children. One half of those are, will close their doors as a result of this. That's just one kind of business. So we're very aware of the devastation that has happened to our economy. I have a question for you, though, that really relates on a spiritual level. How many of you are aware of the devastation to churches in the midst of this? We don't talk a great deal about this. How many of you are, are aware of the incredible devastation to the Christian ministry of the gospel just in America alone in the midst of this? In California, churches are still locked down. Yet the death rate in California of those who is only one one hundredth of one percent, yet churches are forbidden from meeting. In other states, they're coming into churches to see if people are wearing masks while they're singing, and if you're not, they write you a thousand dollar fine. And you have one one hundredth of one percent of mortality rate. Barna Research Group, I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago, tells us that one-third in America 
of people who were active in their church, and they define active in their church as they went to church one time a month or, or, or more. I think we would define active differently than that. But, but if you're in church one time a month, they consider you to be an active churchgoer in America. They tell us that one-third of those active church members will not come back to church. Not just temporarily until the vaccination. They'll never come back. They just got six or seven, eight months of doing something else on Sunday and decided that was better than going to church. And when we come back together, one-third of them won't come back. One in five churches, Barna tells us, will close their doors. And I think the numbers are going to be worse than that because I know pastors and I know churches. I run in that, that, that area. One, even though I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> One in five churches in America will shut their doors by the end of 2021. That is tens of thousands of local churches who have been ministering to the needs of people and ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ in this nation. The church has been and is being devastated by this pandemic. You know, the truth of the matter is, we talk about this around here. This is the largest crowd we've had since we've started meeting. And this is not a large crowd, but thank you. Thank, thank the Lord. This is encouraging. This is encouraging. We actually have no idea who's still with us. It's been eight months since the whole church was authorized to come together because we've been registering, been limiting. We honestly, there are people we haven't heard from in eight months. And we've, we've made contact and all, but we just don't know. Now... You're here, so thank you, <laughs> okay? But I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting place to be. Our budget is $100,000 under the need since the, since the pandemic started. Now, don't get scared. We're not writing hot checks because we have reduced spending by $100,000. We just said on the staff, people are not giving it. We can't spend it. And we've been able to do a lot of that because, well, we haven't been meeting. Okay, events that we had planned didn't happen. The building's been shut down. We've turned off all the heating and air. We saved $10,000 just doing that. I mean, you have no idea what it costs to keep the ministry going. All kinds of things. $100,000, okay? So now when the church ramps back up, and which we're doing it, and, and people come back to church, and they want the youth ministry to be first rate. They want the children's ministry to be operating it on all eight cylinders, and they want all the things going on. The question is, are we going to be able to fund that? We don't know. It's an unknown. I know churches all over this country who, who went into the pandemic with thousands of people meeting and now they have a hard time getting hundreds together together. I would say that the church in America is under siege. I would say America is under siege. I would say businesses are being starved to death. I would say families are under siege in America. We know that the divorce rate is up. We know the abuse rate is up. We know the suicide rate is up. We know all of these things. This is fact, folks. We are under siege. And the question is, are churches going to continue to sit at the gate and die? Or are we going to say it's time to take a leap? It's time to storm the enemy's camp. You know where I'm coming down on that. If we sit, we will die. If we sit, we will die. If we storm the enemy's camp, we may die. 
Because Jesus never promised that every local expression of the church was going to survive. He said, my church will survive. The church universally. It's going to happen. But there's going to be a lot of local churches that are going to close their doors. And we might be one of those. But I'll tell you what, I've decided I'm no longer going to sit at the gate and wait for death. If we're going to die, we're going to die storming the gates of hell. I love these men because they looked at their situation. We're not going to do anything stupid. We're not going to do anything impetuous. We're not going to do anything without informed information. We're going to do everything we can. But we as a church are going to stop sitting at the gate and allow the enemy to close our doors. I love these guys. They looked at their situation. They said, let's go for it. Let's go out there. So they risked. But the, Oh, Derek gets to give you some good stuff. Come on. <laughs> You got all the time you need, man. All right. Do it. Here we go. They risked. Not only that, they rejoiced. Keep reading. The story gets better. It gets better. 2 Kings 7, verse 5. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Hello? Did someone, is someone calling? There was no one there. The camp was empty. The camp was was vacated. Now, maybe because of this hunger pandemic, maybe the Syrian government called them back. They were closing their borders. But that's actually not what happened. Keep reading. Verse 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sounds of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. Imagine this for a moment, all right? These lepers are at the gate. They're already destitute because they're lepers. No one will even let them in the city. They realize they're going to starve to death because of the famine that has overtaken the kingdom. And so they get up. They take this huge risk. Like James said, they were leaping lepers. They decide to go to the enemy's camp. They get there, and no one is there. Now, why? Why were they gone? Somehow, the text doesn't tell us, but God made them hear the sounds of chariots and horses, sounds they knew could not be from Israel. They thought it was maybe the Hittites or the Egyptians. It was way more than they signed up for. They're like, man, we're getting out of Dodge. We can't handle this. We can handle the Israelites. We cannot take on three armies at once. So they fled. Now, check this out. The lepers decided to be unordinary, to, to begin mastering the art of the unordinary. So they took a risk, and the risk paid off. They're in an empty enemy camp, no one around. Now, let me just ask you, if you are in their shoes, what do you do? Because here's the thing, I, I, I read, I love the Old Testament, I read the Old Testament a lot, and, and, and people in the Old Testament have this tendency, when God does something incredible in their lives, they usually like will stop, they'll gather some stones, they'll build this sort of altar thing to commemorate this great moment where Yahweh acted on our behalf, they'll hold up the Ebenezer stone, if you've sang the song before, Come Thou Fount, this is a, a stone that was sort of a commemorative moment that God has been here and they're in prayer, they're, they're on their face praying before Yahweh. They don't do any of that. They're not interested in praying. They're not interested in building altars. They party. <laughs> They're hungry. They get all the food. They get all the Oreos. They get all the drinks. And they begin to have the time of their life. And they didn't have to eat one donkey's head. Not one donkey head. No more donkey burgers. No more dove poop desserts. This is 
a party. They begin grabbing silver and gold and clothing and stuffing it away. I mean, they're having the times of their life. They went in, they took a risk, and the risk turned to rejoicing. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting, and I don't want you to miss this. They went from having absolutely nothing to all of a sudden they have everything that they could have ever asked for, and they never would have experienced this had they not taken the risk. Had they chosen the path of the ordinary rather than the unordinary, they never would have felt and experienced the faithfulness of God because they risked, because they took this leap of faith, they experienced God's faithfulness in a way that that was only unique to that risk. So let me give you a truth. Faith is a doorway to experiencing the faithfulness of God. Faith is a doorway to experiencing the faithfulness of God. In other words, you cannot experience the faithful work of God that is happening behind the scenes. Like like we just sung a moment ago in Waymaker, even when I don't see it, you're working, right? God is always working behind us in ways that we cannot even imagine. There's always things happening behind the scenes, and faith gets us the the behind-the-scenes access that we all want. It is a doorway that opens and allows us to see and experience the faithfulness of God for his people. Listen, if you only keep doing what you've always done, you'll only continue to experience the things you've always experienced. If you are in a place of difficulty, of, 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 of great troubling circumstances in your life, and you don't change anything, nothing will change. Risk always leads. Faithful risk always leads. Not, not ridiculous risk. Faithful Risk always leads to faithful rejoicing. There's a really practical application here that I I don't want to miss. For those of you who are are not aware, every Sunday morning at 8.30 a.m., before the 9 a.m. service, we have a pre-worship service morning show that we uh, call Good Morning City on a Hill. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's been going on now for, I think, four or five weeks. I bring on several different staff members and different people to talk about different initiatives and the ministries that we're doing, um, give you guys some insight into just different groups that are coming up, different uh, ministry opportunities. This morning, I brought on James, the pirate pastor. <laughs> And we talked about the Fearless series that he's produced. And if you're not aware of what that is, the Fearless series is a five-week video series that he has produced with uh, top, top-shelf professionals, all of which, except for a couple of them, are uh, survivors of sexual abuse. And the aim is for survivors of sexual abuse to learn the statistics, to learn prevention. It's not just for survivors. We've, we've opened it up to all of our ladies. We just finished our fourth week on Wednesday. Uh, we have about almost 100 women in here, a little over 90, I think, that are going through it. And, and not all of them are survivors. Some of them are not. Some of them just wanted the information so that they could better minister to women who are. But it's been an incredible experience. But James talked on the, the, the morning show this morning, and I, and I highly encourage you to go and, and check it out, about how this whole thing is, is structured. Because I don't know that we've really communicated it in this way before. The Fearless series is actually a two-part series. Right now, what we're doing is part one. It's a five-week video-driven study for all women. And we are going to eventually open that up to men as well because we feel like it's very important for guys to hear this information, and and we'll make you aware when that happens. But the first section, five weeks, all ladies. The second section, the second part, is an eight-week study through a workbook that James has written to go along with it, a follow-up 
for the women who are survivors of sexual abuse to begin actually working through. Because in five weeks, you cannot possibly address everything that's under there. You can't in eight weeks. But when you begin really digging down in workbook fashion, he's covering topics like shame, things that absolutely have to be addressed, that are difficult, that are hard, that are scary. But what an opportunity to begin to really Get down into, maybe for the first time for many of you, the worst hurt in your life. And and here's the deal. It's scary. Many of you have never talked about this before. I've heard that several times over the last four weeks. Ladies are sharing for the first time ever in their life. 40s, 50s, 60-year-old women for the first time ever sharing with someone. It's scary. There's unimaginable anxiety and I, wanna, I just want to speak this to you, ladies, who, are, who are, are considering that next part, that eight-week study. I want you to remember this story. I want you to remember the words of these four lepers. If we stay here, we die. It doesn't get better. If I stay here, it doesn't get better. If I go back to the city, it doesn't get better. And if I move forward, it may not get better. But there's certainly a chance that it will. There's certainly a chance. If you will dig down, will there be pain? Absolutely. Will it be difficult? Absolutely. But there is a chance on the other side of that for freedom, for rejoicing, for help, hope, and healing. And and, and, and listen, it's a risk, isn't it? That's right. It's a risk. You have to take a risk. You have to take a leap. But I promise you, God is, I love what June said in the prayer, God is a promise keeper. He will keep his promises. If you will make the faithful risk in this, God will lead you to rejoicing. He always does. Amen. He always does. We want to experience the, the faithfulness of God. The problem is, is we're so scared of the risk. And if you will see how these lepers made the leap, took the risk, and how God faithfully led them, we have that opportunity as well in so many more ways than one. And, and, and for those of you who are not even in the Fearless series or guys who are just considering taking a freedom group coming up, they start, I think, next week. It, it, the same applies to you. You have an opportunity. Take the risk. It will lead you to rejoicing. You see, the art of being unordinary requires risk. It leads to rejoicing, but last, and don't forget this, they return they returned. Verse 9, it says, Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and we wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So the guys are sitting around. They're stuffed. They've had their 16th Oreo at this point, right? Oreos must be on my mind this morning. Yeah, they really are. Oh, Oreos. You know, they're vegan, by the way, for those of you who I'm a Chips Ahoy guy myself. Chips Ahoy, I'm I'm not down on that. The the Oreos are where it's at. They're stuffed. Their adrenaline has started to come down, and they think to themselves, wait a minute. This isn't right. I mean, we we have all this stuff, and we have a whole kingdom that is starving. We got to go back and tell them. This would be wrong if we just sat here. Now, this is a great point for us to consider this morning. They had experienced God's faithfulness. They had rejoiced in it. That's awesome. Nothing wrong with that. I think sometimes we feel guilty when God blesses us in really incredible ways. Like, I don't know that I should celebrate this, right? No, absolutely celebrate it. If God is blessing you, celebrate it. Rejoice in it. But listen, if it stops there and it never goes beyond yourself, that's when it becomes wrong. That's right. 
And that's what they realized. How can, how can we experience such blessing, so many Oreos, <laughs> such an incredible gift from God, and not tell other people about it? So here's the question that we need to ask, an interpretive question as we study this passage. Did God do this just for them, the four lepers, or did he do it for all of Israel? And I'm going to suggest to you, yes, all of Israel. In fact, we don't have to guess about it. It's very plain in the text. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, if you go back, the prophet Elisha says, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And, and remember when he said this, they're still eating donkey head burgers for a high premium. And he says, yeah, by tomorrow, y'all be fine. And he definitely said y'all, right? Absolutely. He was in the north, but southern guy. He's, he never, he never, God never plans a blessing for us and intends for it to just stop with you. You need to understand that. And it is apparent throughout all of Scripture. It, it, not just these people, but all of them. you, you got to get this. Let me give you a truth, and then we'll walk through it. When God's blessing stops with you, you didn't really understand the purpose of the blessing. You didn't really understand it. He never intends for it to stop with you. Right now in our, our Life Bible Studies on Sunday morning, we are studying through Genesis. We're about to finish it. Um, we studied through all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We see this pattern in all of their lives, right? Abraham, a man blessed by God, Genesis 12 2, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will just be a great guy with a fun story. Is that what he said? No. So that you will be a blessing, in verse 3, he says, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Same is true for Isaac. Same is true for Jacob, both heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. Joseph becomes a blessing not only to Israel, but to all of Egypt because of his faithful working, because of the risks that he takes while he is following Yahweh. Same is true with Paul. Paul saved radically on the Damascus road. And, and, and he could have just gone on and lived a fun life and, you know, gone to Bible study and gone to church on Sunday mornings, and everything would have been fine. That's not what he did. The blessing of God to save him, the worst of the worst, a Pharisee executing Christians, he took, he began sharing the gospel, planning churches. He becomes one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament. Listen, God never intends for the blessing to stop with you. Their return to the city is so important. It's the heart of the story. You can't understand the purpose of God without this detail. Their return to the city unlocks the whole thing because it's in here that God demonstrates his actual final purpose. I want you to think about this for a minute. They took a risk by leaving. That was faith. They rejoiced in the faithfulness of God. That was gratitude. But check this out. They returned to the city to tell others that was grace. Mm -hmm. That was grace. Now, why grace? Why do I say grace? Because remember who these men are. They're lepers. They're despised. No one wants them around. They were, they were relegated to the gates of the city outside of, of human contact, left to die on their own. They could have easily thought, why should we go back and tell those people? They've kept us out of the city this whole time. Let them die. They didn't take the risk. I took the risk. Why should they get the blessing? In fact, if that was a detail in the story that I read to you, half of y'all be like, amen, yeah, they deserve it. <laughs> I would. But that's not what they do. They come back. This is a picture of grace. These people didn't deserve anything. They did nothing to earn their favor, and yet the lepers blessed them anyway. Ultimately, folks, here's what I don't want you to miss. What do we take away from this? This is a picture of the gospel. That's right. We take a leap 
when we believe the gospel, when we believe Jesus, when we confess Jesus, it's a risk, it's faith. We rejoice in God's great work in our life, the new life that we are given. That's the gratitude aspect. But we have to return back to the city to tell other people about it. Often we end at rejoicing, and we just go on rejoicing, and we never return to tell other people. What did Jesus say? As you freely received, freely give. Go make disciples of all the nations. Go tell people about this. Tell your story. Talk about forgiveness. Talk about redemption. I don't, and when I talk about sharing the gospel, I'm not just talking about a couple Bible verses and let's pray together. That, that's, that's, not, that's a packaged way that is so restrictive. I mean sharing how Jesus has impacted your life. Ladies in the Fearless series, share your story. Return, take the risk. Rejoice in the healing that you receive and then return to the city. There are many other women out there who need to hear this stuff. Right. Don't just risk and rejoice, but return. If, listen, if you're changed, you will share it with other people. It's easy for me to share about the ministries at this church, the freedom groups, the Bible studies. All of this is very easy for me. And you're like, well, yeah, you're, you're a pastor. You're paid to do it. It's your job. No. It's easy for me because I'm a product of it. Because I made a profession of faith where God gave me new life in this church. We're sitting right back here by where Marcus is. This is where I heard the gospel from the first time, by James preaching. Not even two weeks later, God redeemed me radically. And I began walking in rejoicing in this church. So it is, look, it's easy for me to talk about it. We talk about things that we, I, I say this all the time, we talk about the things that we like that are exciting to us. You talk about the things that are exciting to you, movies that you've seen, music that you enjoy, sports that you like or that you don't like. You talk about them because they matter to you. Does Jesus matter to you? That's right. Do you have a, and, and here's the other part, is I, I think sometimes we get up here and we talk about, yeah, share your story, share your story, return to the city. And it doesn't really resonate with some of you because maybe you've never risked and rejoiced to begin with. There's no story to tell. And I don't say that to, to condemn you or make you feel uh, fearful. I say that because now's the time. Take the risk today. Make the profession of faith. Bow before him. Begin rejoicing and then return to the city after that. We are at this point where, as James said, we're not sitting at the gate any longer. And, and what that means, it, it means so many things, more things than we have to say this morning. But for you as an individual, how do you not sit at the gate any longer? How do you begin taking the risk? You begin being bold for Jesus. There are a lot of churches that are closing down right now. We're not. So invite people here. Bring them. We have the gospel. We have the antidote to every problem in life. And we have an incredible ministry to practically begin working through things that people feel a lot of fear and a lot of shame talking about in most churches. And here we say, oh, you too? Welcome. If you want to master the art of being unordinary, you take risks, you rejoice when God meets you with his faithfulness, and you return to the city to tell the people about it. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we bless you. We thank you. We're so encouraged by this. We're so encouraged by your spirit, your Holy Spirit, as he leads us, as we open your word. He never fails. 
to bring light to spiritual things that we are so desperately in need to hear. And I pray that we would, that we would no longer be sitting at the gate, but we would be bold for your son, for the gospel. How we love you and we thank you, our way maker, our promise keeper. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.